Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Just mentally hanging in there, trying to hold your composure and try to be serene in the, in the tough moments, very challenging moments. Today I came out with a good concentration, intensity, and I'm uh, just glad to overcome it in four sets. Thanks for uh, calling into New York. Joined by my capable producer, Jamie Lasanti. You can hear her. She will uh, She will tee this up. Um, it's a strange, strange tournament, but take this anywhere you want to take it, Jamie. What do you want to know? I want to start out with, uh, you know, the, the number one seeds who started out the day nice and early for us on, like you said, this strange Wednesday in the second week. You, you talked a little bit about this in your column today. But I wanted to ask you because, you know, you talked to Serena after her match. 
you asked her about peaking at, you know, during the slams and what she's really doing to get that done. Uh, what do you think about how she played today and sort of how she looks for the remainder of the tournament? Serena played a terrific semifinal match in Australia against Red Wanska, and that match now was standing. I think this is the best match she's played all year. The match she played today, she beat Svitolina, an up-and-coming Ukrainian player, and Serena was just terrific. And I wrote about this today, Jamie, but I think Serena, a lot of people who are casual fans just think, oh, I've seen the commercials, and she clubs the ball, and all these little blondies on the other side of the net uh, can't handle her power. And there's probably some truth to that that could be empirically supported, but I think more important is just this level of professionalism. And think about Serena today. This match was supposed to have taken place two days ago. So she's had two days of, am I going to play? Am I not going to play? Am I going to eat? Am I not going to eat? She is playing in the latter stages of a Grand Slam. She's 34 years old. She's playing a player with nothing to lose, who's not untalented, who's coached by Justine Hennon. There's a lot of potential for drama there. She was at the IPF dinner accepting her Player of the Year award last night. And with all those distractions, Serene Williams goes out today at 11 a.m. and absolutely cleans the court. I mean, she had 27 winners. She wasn't missing balls. She was a 5-0, got insurance breaks in both sets. 6-1, 6-1 in about 62 minutes to reach the quarterfinals. And I think people look at that score and they sort of say, oh, well, another, uh, another Serena route. But I think if we pause there and consider the, the level of, of sort of professionalism and focus and, and sharpness that has gotten into this, I mean, Venus was playing simultaneously and was not nearly as sharp. We've seen other players. Andy Murray lost a set today. Novak Djokovic lost a set in this match uh, yesterday. What Serena has, this, this gift to sort of not just play well, but to really play well when it matters most, is just remarkable. And now here she sits, three matches from winning another title here in defending. This will give her her fourth French Open title, apart from tying Steffi Graf with 22 slams. She would also tie Graf as the only player to win all four majors at least four times. And today I thought we got a real glimpse of how she's made this possible. Is she peaking? I, I think absolutely. I mean... Two weeks ago, we were all worried about her season. Um, she hadn't won a tournament since Cincinnati, which was August of last year. She lost at the U.S. Open, of course. She lost in the Australian Open final. Uh, she was defeated in Miami, and there were these sort of swirling questions. Lost the final video. Well, there were these swirling questions about, is it finally time for Serena? And it's not time. She won in Rome, and here she is absolutely the player to beat. And based on play today, it's really going to take... Um, it's sort of a, a remarkable act for anybody to, uh, to, to topple her here. Uh, the other number one seed on the men's side had a much different type of fourth-round match. Novak Djokovic had lost the first set against Batista Gut yesterday, uh, leveled the match, went up a break in the third, and came back today and took care of business. It was seldom pretty. He faced a lot of break points, but he did what he had to do. I, I talked about after that match, too, and he was certainly uh, a lucky to survive. I got three matches to go before the goal, but this this was not this defeat of Patisa uh, Gu today. This is a nice player, but um, not someone who ordinarily has given Djokovic much trouble. Uh, this was one of those matches of, of surviving advance. This was not one for the Djokovic scrapbook, but he did what he had to do. He's now in the quarters. He plays Verdict tomorrow on Thursday, which will be, I, I believe, the first match on if, if my schedule is correct and there are no changes. You spoke with Djokovic after his match on Wednesday, 
And uh, we're going to hear, thanks to our friends at Tennis Channel, we're going to hear a little bit of that interview. So let's take a listen. Novak Djokovic into another quarterfinal here at the French Open. We have an expression in the U.S., survive in advance. Was this just one of these matches to get through? Yes. Uh, you know, not just, uh, just result-wise, but, you know, just mentally hanging in there, trying to, uh, trying to hold your composure and try to be serene in the, in the tough moments, very challenging moments, uh, um, especially in the, in the conditions that we had in the last three days uh, with uh, plenty of interruptions. And uh, Bautista Gut is a very, uh, very good player. He, he's very quick. He anticipates well um, you know he was getting a lot of balls back making me play extra shots you know and I, I think today I came out with a good concentration intensity and uh, just glad to overcome it in four sets we keep hearing that these conditions are an equalizer that they're giving the underdogs more of a chance as a favorite what can you do to get that back in your favor well you know the, the conditions are obviously slower because the balls get very big and very wet and court as well you know it gets very muddy so um, you know sometimes it takes a bit of a time for you to really get into the groove, get into the rhythm and the motion and, and uh, you know, the players that have nothing to lose and as you, as you mentioned the underdogs, they probably, you know go out there and from the first point trying to, trying to hit a great shot so it worked well for him, he won a set first set and we got interruption and you know, I played very good second and third set, especially today uh, in the fourth was quite equal but uh, I'm just glad to have this kind of challenge you know, it's, it's good for me and I'm hopefully going to use it for, for, for well for the rest of the tournament So you're grabbing your neck yesterday You've got the prospect of three matches in four days. The body holding up. I'm I'm going going straight to the locker room and see uh, what I can do. But uh, you know, thankfully, is is nothing nothing uh, um, concerning me. There's no major concern, so I'm I'm, I'm hopefully going to be fine for next one. Today, the quest continues. There you go. The quest continues, and like you wrote about today, he will now uh, have to win three matches in four days in order to win that French Open title. What kind of grade do you give Novak Djokovic so far in this 2016 French Open? Um, it's been an interesting tournament for him. Obviously, we've been talking all tournament. This is the one major that he's never won. This is the one major that's really preventing him from really sort of taking up space in that greatest of all time conversation. It's all a bit strange because he's such a good clay court player. He's won a dozen titles in his career on clay. He's been to the finals here multiple times, but he's never won the French, and now he has to win. In order to do so, he'll have to win three matches in four days, and yet I would contend that maybe that's not such a bad thing. He's the most fit player on tour, so it's not as though stamina is likely to be an issue. And I think that having these back-to-back -back matches that focus him on these matches will, in some ways, sort of minimize the other distractions and will diminish sort of the time that he'll have to spend thinking about history, and if I don't do it now, when will I do it? And this is the round where I was knocked out a few years ago, or this is the round I was knocked out last year, obviously being the final. In a weird way, I, I think that this crazy schedule actually um, might help Djokovic. Now here we are. It hasn't been pretty all the time. He has not necessarily looked uh, as sharp as he has earlier this year, say, in most of the second half of the Australian Open, but he's three matches for the prize. How's that for a tennis monologue, Jamie? <laughs> You're so good at those. <laughs> we, only get, uh, we, we only get small bites on, uh, on TV, so this is what I've saved up all day. So, um, <laughs> it, it's just, you know, I mean, this tournament has been, in some ways, it's been nuts, and I, again, I have never seen rain like that, not even in a tennis context. I mean, I've just never seen rain like this. The, the sun has literally not, it is raining every day except two 
since, uh, you know, May 21st. Yep. I mean, it's, it's just been bizarre. But, you know, it, I look at the draw, though, and what do I see? You know, Sarita's still in this. Her likely opponent in the final, Garbino Barusa, is probably the second best player um, on clay. They, I mean, a lot of people would have picked that as, as a likely final matchup. Djokovic is still in. Andy Murray, number two, is still in. The defending champ, Stan Break is still in. And the other likely semifinalist is Dominic Team, who a lot of people have pegged as sort of the next big star. So for, for all the chaos and the doll pulling out and rain delays, um, it, it actually is shaping up to be a perfectly reasonable tournament. You talked to him about the heavy conditions there. Um, and, you know, you mentioned it's only not rain for two days out of the tournament. What was it like being there and, and watching the players uh, sort of go through the in and out? And like you said, you know, should I eat? Should I not eat? Am I going to play? When do I sleep? Um, you know, what have you heard uh, from all the players about sort of that whole logistical issue that comes with uh, these conditions and then the on-court conditions as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the NBA finals start, and they don't say the game is at 7.30 unless uh, we'll check the weather report. It might be 9.30, and you may have to play uh, the first half today and the second half tomorrow. I mean, it's just pretty unique to tennis. Um, not that we often modify the word unique, but, uh, you know, not a lot of sports go, go through this drill, and I think what you see here, what happens all the time is that there's, there's a lot of sort of frustration that builds. And we saw players, right, well, it's the holop. We saw players who were upset that they had to play yesterday. We saw other players say, oh, come on, it's not that bad. Why don't you put the matches on? They should be playing. Uh, it's impossible to to please everyone. I think it just is the same frustration that the fans sort of harbor. They're, they're sitting here and they're looking at their weather apps. And they, too, do I go home? Do I tough it out? Is there a place where I can take a nap? The players are going through the same thing. And... You know, again, Radwanska is a player who was very outspoken. Burdick wasn't happy either. It's just unfortunate. I think the, the sort of moral of the story is you just need to have a covered court. And it sounds a little crazy that you're going to build this wildly expensive roof for an event that only is held two weeks out of every year. But I think you sort of do the math and you look at the TV contracts in particular, and you just can't have play come to it. A total stoppage, and at some level, this is this is a frustration. Um, at the same time, there are all sorts of variables in tennis. I would even say all sports, but you know, a, a windy, wet day in in Miami or at the U.S. Open on hard courts is much different from when the sun is shining in Melbourne. There were matches that were played indoors, and there were matches that were played when it was 125 degrees. I mean, that's a 50 degree swing in temperature from one round to the other. So it's not as though the French is the only tournament, it's not as a rain is the only variable that throws a wrench in it. Part of being a tennis player is dealing with these sort of quirks and these and these variables. Um, again, I think that the absence of a day off uh, may end up helping some players. It's obviously uh, a much greater physical challenge, especially the men who play best of five, not to have that day off in between matches. Uh, there is some precedent for that. There have been grand slams when there have been multiple matches played without the day off, where you'll, you'll play, you know, four rounds in five days. But especially, I, I look at Djokovic, and I look at all the pressure, and he's been very good at dressing. And if he hasn't hit from it, he knows what's at stake, he knows what winning will mean, he knows what not winning will mean, and he certainly sort of understands all the dimensions to this. I, I think for him, if he's going home at night and he's not thinking about, boy, history's on the line, but instead he's thinking of, boy, I've really got to, 
game plan for this Dominic team cat who's only 22 years old and has nothing to lose. Um, I, I think in a way that, that may help him. But um, mm-hmm. again, my, my overarching themes, Jamie, straight tournament, but at the end of the day, it may end up being recalled as, as historic. All right, John, I'm going to stop you there for a quick second so we can take a little bit of a break. You talked about the NBA Finals not getting postponed or rescheduled because of rain like the French Open. And the Thunder and Steph Curry will meet the Cavs and LeBron James in the NBA Finals. And two people who know a lot more about the NBA than you and I are SI's Ben Golliver and Andrew Sharp. And they're watching every minute of the action. And they'll have all the top storylines ready for you on their podcast. That's The Open Floor, SI's NBA podcast. You can find it on SI.com slash podcast or your favorite podcast app of choice. Now back to some tennis. I wanted to ask you about Simona Halep and Aga Radwanska. What do you think about their comments yesterday uh, after they both lost um, in in the strange weather, you know, matches that were stopped and then started and then stopped again. Did you hear anything from anyone at the tournament or, um, you know, anything else from them about uh, the conditions and sort of their feelings about it? I know they, they mentioned a lot of things about maybe the way that it was held. Um, you know, I know that Halep was asked if she thought she was going to consider walking off court or, you know, saying that she was not going to play in these conditions. What have you heard? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, the, the, to me, the big distinction is sort of annoyance and, boy, it's raining versus danger. And the point that Hollip Reigns and other players have mentioned is that the balls here, especially on clay, get so heavy. And for players who have had wrist injuries, which is obviously the injury Nadal has, Red Wanska had wrist surgery in 2013, um, when you're hitting these, these heavy, heavy balls and you're risking an injury, that to me is, is a much different situation than, boy, it's uncomfortable and it's raining and misty and my first serve speeds are down. Um, it, it did seem like when you're bringing up the, the health and safety issue, that's a legitimate concern. And, and that, to me, I'm, I'm much more sympathetic and empathetic than just, you know, that the conditions were, were kind of misty. And I think that was really the root of Red Wanska's Again, though, the alternative is everybody sits and we wait for the perfect day, and then that gives rise to a host of other complaints. So some of the players and some of their agents and managers that were hovering around the tournament office yesterday were saying, listen, we can play in this. We've got to keep the schedule moving. We've got to make sure that players have as many off days as possible. We don't want this final bleeding into next week because there are other events that are on the schedule and it's going to undermine them. And then you had cases like Redwanska and Hollop, and, and, and again, Burdick, too, today, where they were of the impression that it was ridiculous that uh, players were held. I mean, the one thing, too, that was sort of circulating the grounds is that they have a refund policy here where mm-hmm. I, I think, don't, don't quote me on this now that you're quoting me, but uh, I believe <laughs> if the matches were less than an hour, it was a full refund, one to two hours, a half refund, and more than two hours, no refund. And the Djokovic match stopped yesterday at 201 so the uh, conspiracy theories were, uh, were were floating around today did they keep these matches on too long just so they didn't have to uh, refund those tickets but um, you know it, it's the whole thing is it, it's unfortunate for the tournament and there was a lot of bitterness yesterday but again I mean, you see this in the past I mean the when Novak Djokovic wins this title and you know completes the career slam and completes the Novak slam and steps closer to uh 
Nadal and, and Federer and when Serena Williams wins her 22nd major or when you know, Muguruza breaks through with this tremendous tournament on clay or when Sam Barbrinka, you know, defends his title or Andy Murray wins a third slam. Ultimately, that's what people are going to remember and not uh, a few days of umbrellas up. I think people are also going to remember a little bit about uh, Nadal's withdrawal from this tournament. And we got some news today that he obviously and sort of expectedly withdrew from Queens Club because of his wrist injury. Did you hear anything more about what's happening with that? Any updates? Um, Do you think he's going to be ready for Wimbledon? I think that's everybody's hope. Um, I think that's awfully optimistic, I mean, sort of given what we know about wrist injuries of, of any kind, um, it, it sounds a little bit risky, especially, you know, the 30-year-old uh, Nadal obviously turns 30 on Friday, it, it, it sounds awfully risky, but um, no, nobody's ruled out Wimbledon yet, I mean, obviously, I mean, he, he said at one point, uh, he, he said this could be anything from one month to three months. And mm-hmm. I guess that sounds, I mean, I, you know, we, none of us have examined him. That sounds, sure, that sounds reasonable. The only thing is that one month, in theory, you could be playing Wimbledon. Three months, you've missed the Olympics. you probably missed the U.S. Open. For all intents, your season is all but over. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how this heals. And, and again, a wrist injury is nothing to take lightly. Uh, you know, Juan Martin Del Potro is an example of a player who had a wrist injury and really hasn't been the same since and has multiple, multiple surgeries. Other players have had wrist injuries. You know, Sam Stoser had a wrist injury coming into this event, and there were rumors that she may pull out or that she wouldn't have a successful tournament. Here she is in the semifinals. So we don't know enough about it. The one thing, I mean, I, you know, we were sort of joking that uh, someone had sent a tweet to me that if that Nadal had only waited, uh, his wrist injury would be healed by the time the tournament was over. <laughs> um, we were joking, too, he's the one player that hasn't dropped a set. I mean, he looked terrific in his first two matches, which is sort of part of uh, the, the other the other sadness to this pullout. But the truth is, under these heavy conditions with heavy, heavy balls, um, the worst thing imaginable would have been to go out there and play with this injured wrist. And he claims, you know, tendons would have snapped and uh, you know, this thing was close to close to breaking. So um, you, you wish him well and selfishly, as sort of a tennis fan, you hope he'll be back for Wimbledon, but uh, I, I would not be taking mortgages on that. My last question is just switching gears a little bit to you. Just ask you about, you know, we've seen you for Tennis Channel interview lots of different players, both on the court, and you've had, you know, people come up to the desk uh, with you and Brett, and just curious, what is it like to, to be down there after a match with a player? Um, sort of take us into that. How do you prepare for something like that? And, you know, how is it different from writing your column every week? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I, you know, I mean, it, talking to someone at the desk is much different than as soon as they walk off the court. Um, usually there's, there's a list of players to interview, and it, it tends to be winner only. So if you know, Serena had lost, you don't sit there and, and take a microphone in her face. You're usually, the deal is three, you know, all the industrial secrets here, Jamie. <laughs> the deal is usually three questions, and it's tough. I mean, I'm, you know, why not be totally candid? Uh, with these interviews, it's not altogether different than, I suppose, these sideline reporters and, you know, Coach Kerr, what do you have to do differently in the second half if you want to, you know, turn this out somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can, you get 
three questions that you can sort of play conservatively. Great win, Serena. How'd you do it? Or what were you most pleased with? Or you can uh, go a little off the board and the risk, you know, the risk reward ratio tends to get tends to go up if you if you ask a, a bit of a um, you know a, a bit of a non predictable question. I mean, the, the one problem I think it's good for people. You know, I think the pre match interviews I think have very limited value. I think post match interviews can be helpful. The only thing is these players are just getting off the court having won a Grand Slam match, so. You're not talking about their childhood. You're not talking about mm-hmm. hopes and dreams and surprises. It tends to be kind of boom-boom. And you try not to ask yes-no questions to get too short an answer, but you try not to ask too involved questions that uh, will, will go on too long. It's, it's a weird, you know, it, it's, it's a different exercise than a conventional interview where you can have a bit more of a conversation. Um, but, you know, though the players tend to be quite good. And the truth is that the... Players like Djokovic and Federer and Serena, they've done this drill so many times, they sort of know what you're looking for, they know how long the sound bite should be, they know what the drill is like. It gets a little, like I interviewed Bashinsky today, mm-hmm. and she's great, and you know, I, I know her a bit, and, but you know, her, her answers were not uh, tailored to the post-match time limits, so uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit of a different experience, but um, you know, it's, it's not... No one's, no one's curious to answer here. Sounds like fun, though. We're all jealous watching you out there. It's a real <laughs> No, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the thing about these courtside interviews, honestly, and I get the same is true for all sports, I suppose. The, uh, I, I think the, the risks tend to, I mean, it's, it's seldom that you get a real nugget right as the coach goes into halftime or right after the game, after he's shaking hands with the other coach or mm-hmm. right after the player walks off the court after a win. And yet the potential for embarrassment always seems to be fairly high. You know, you're in this controlled environment and you've got to throw it back. It's a lot different than somebody sitting at the desk. I mean, the other trick about the desk, as long as we're telling secrets, um, <laughs> they usually arrive a few minutes earlier. So you break the ice and you, you don't necessarily say, here's what I'm going to ask you. But you have a little chit-chat and you warm them up and they build some rapport and maybe you pick something up talking to them. I mean, we've had players that have... You had to wait till a commercial break comes. We've had players sit there for, you know, eight, ten minutes, and you chit-chat and talk about things, and by the time you're ready to go on the air, you've got a nice rapport built. You sort of have a sense of where you want to take it. If they give you a great answer, you keep going. If they give you a lame answer, you quickly switch gears. That's a much different drill than you got three questions to fire at Serena before she goes into the locker room. For sure. And uh, we'll have your uh, your mailbag readers send you some questions if they have any, you know, so you can fill up the notebook. I was going to say, I'm, I'm open to suggestions if people have questions, but uh, they, they can't be yes-no, and conversely, they can't be too involved, because if you just win a Grand Slam match, you're not ready to tick off, you know, your, your five recurring nightmares. But um, Yeah, so we can't ask them, you know, about someone else's Hall of Fame candidacy or something like that? Yeah, exactly. You, you don't, uh, right. If Serena walks up the court and you don't want to say to her, uh, you know, name, name your five favorite players from pre-open era. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm open to suggestions. If people have questions, fire away. Awesome. Well, we'll let you go. Thank you for taking some time after this jam-packed Wednesday. Do you want to take us out? Sure. John Wertheim in Paris. Thanks for listening. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. My inimitable, invaluable producer is Jamie Lanzanti. We will wrap up the French Open next week. Until then, enjoy.
Thank you.